What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Movie Crush. Friday, filmmaker series a dish. Sitting across from me is Paul Deschamps. <laughs> Close. Do people uh, try and French up your name often? Yeah. I think that's the ass- assumed pronunciation when you see it written. But it's actually decant, not Deschamps. That's such a, like, where are you from, Indiana? Kansas. That's such a Kansas thing to do. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Um, is it French, though? As far as I know, it's not. Maybe way, way, way back, but it's actually German. Oh. Uh, Yeah, on my father's side, uh, Germans. Germans from Russia, actually, uh, who emigrated to the United States. Wow. uh, The late 1800s. Crazy. Yeah. Did you do one? Did you do a DNA test or you just know this stuff? No, that's just as far as what we know. Family history. We should do a DNA test, though. That'd be a good good thing to do. Hey, you never know. (laughs) I I got mine back. I'm, uh, as as expected, like... Super British, Irish, uh, European, and then like 1% Sub-Saharan African. Interesting. And I'm like, I bet they do that to everybody just to like- They throw in something unexpected. Just to unite people. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's, man, that'd be a really clever thing yeah, to do right? them, wouldn't it? We're all the same. Like, hey, that's what it said. It showed, man. That's what the DNA shows. Send, uh... no, never mind. I'm not going to get political. <laughs> We're about to talk politics anyway. We are. So uh number two in our in our Sophia Coppola series, uh 
took forever to get us in there, and that is 99% my fault. I think probably 100% my fault. <laughs> you didn't push it all, did you? I don't think so. No. But I'm happy to be here now. Yeah, man. Thanks for your patience. No problem. Uh, and we are discussing, we're going all out of order with her career um, just because we're tackling whatever we feel like. Uh, and we're doing Marie Antoinette from 2006, a movie that I love. As do I. And uh, I watched it again last night. Yeah, I watched it. I actually watched it twice in the past couple of weeks. <laughs> Why? <laughs> uh, for those of you listening, we scheduled this a few weeks ago and yeah. had it pushed. So uh, I got to watch it twice, though. And it uh, gets better every time I watch it, man. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. Um, so give me your, your history with this film. And I did not do a ton of background on this because I thought – I've sort of did that with Casey recently. And I was like, I think it's working out better because there's nothing worse than two people who both know the same shit. Yeah. Just telling each other that stuff. So I'm like, I figure you guys probably know the background more than me. So you tell me your personal background. Sure. And then whatever else you want to say about the movie. Yeah. Personal background. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure I first saw this in high school shortly after it came out. Mm-hmm. And I was in French the class. Brother. <laughs> <laughs> dating ourselves. Here. Yes. Uh, but I took French in high school, four years of French, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure we watched it in French class. Oh, interesting. And I think we also watched another Marie Antoinette movie from like the 1950s, maybe. Uh, I forget who's in that one, but it's, uh, it's kind of your, what you'd expect for a historical biopic, you know? Sure. That version. Yeah. And then we watched the Sofia Coppola version and it was that thing where our teacher sort of warned us, hey, this is pretty anachronistic and there's a lot of <laughs> liberties that are going to be taken in this film. But uh, but I didn't have a lesson planned for today, so <laughs> I'm going to watch this uh, inaccurate historical movie that really doesn't tell any true story. Actually, that's not true. Yeah, I and I think uh, we'll get into this, but I think uh, the movie is all the better for it, for not yeah. trying to follow the standard historical biopic structure. I think so, too. And I think Sofia Coppola was always very clear um, that I I didn't set out – this is her talking – I didn't set out to make a historically – like, this is not a history lesson. Right. That may have been an exact quote, actually. Like, I did not intend to make a history lesson here. I thought it was a cool idea. Um, And I think she bordered that – I think she walked that fine line of – adding enough contemporary elements to make it an interesting exercise without it being like, you know, clueless, which I enjoy, by the way. Right. But not like clueless as Marie Antoinette. Yeah. I I mean, it's interesting, too, that um, I didn't realize this originally, but the the movie is based on a book. Oh, yeah? It's based on uh, a 2001 book by an author named Antonia Frazier, and it's called Marie Antoinette, The Journey. Oh. And it's from what I have not read it, from, but from what I understand, it's a kind of what you'd think of as a, a look in a look into the life of Marie Antoinette. But it kind of takes a very sympathetic approach to Marie Antoinette in the right. hopes of kind of rehabilitating her image, right, uh, from what it had been, right. Which was, um, I mean, I don't know a ton about her, but it's a lot of criticism about her excess and her um, her spending. Mm-hmm. And in the face of, you know, poverty in France at the time. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And you definitely see that in the movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the interesting but thing— But not critically, though, right? 
so much. No, I think there are there are ways the film criticizes that, um, which we could get into. But say what you were saying first. Sorry. Okay. I cut you off. Uh, well, just to follow up on what you were saying about what Sofia Coppola was trying to do with the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this isn't a direct quote, but maybe I'm paraphrasing her, but she didn't want something stodgy. Mm. She didn't want it to feel like masterpiece theater. Right. You know, uh, and I have a quote from the great Roger Ebert, who mm. I quoted in the Lost in Translation episode. Nice. Uh, Bringing Ebert back to the show. <laughs> he's great, man. And he was a big Sofia Coppola yeah. fan. And uh, this was from his review of the film, which I really like summing up kind of Coppola's uh, stylistic approach to the movie. Yeah. He says, quote, Many characters in historical films seem somehow aware that they're living in the past. Marie seems to think she is a teenager living in the present, which of course she is. And the contemporary pop references invite the audience to share her present with ours. Nice. And I love that, the idea yeah. that when you watch these historical films in general – Everyone acts with this sort of stately mm-hmm. elegance as if they realize they're like performing, you know, Shakespeare on the stage. And Sofia Coppola says, you know what? I want to get into the psyche of this young woman. Mm-hmm. Who like was a teenager and may – like I don't – you never you, – you, we don't have time machines, Paul. <laughs> so we don't know uh, – I know this is disappointing to everyone. The Wayback Machine is pretend, but <laughs> – Wait, we we can't go back in time and really see what it was like. But teenagers have always been teenagers to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a biological thing that happens and a maturity thing that happens in one's life where uh, I imagine even though it was a different time and place, she was still a teenager. And she, I think, captured that in this movie. Yeah. And so I think what's great about the movie is if you know nothing about Marie Antoinette historically. Yeah, for sure. You can still – get what's going on. Yeah. Um, I did a little bit of digging in just kind of the, the almost the Wikipedia summary of mm-hmm. Marie Antoinette as the historical figure. Yeah. And I think a few interesting things to point out here are um, basically her age mm-hmm. as depicted in the film. Because obviously she's played by Kirsten Dunst and uh, Coppola doesn't really try to, she doesn't age her with makeup or try to make make her look too much older or mm-hmm. younger. Yeah. She kind of just keeps her same look aside from changing hairstyles and fashion. But it's important to remember that uh, when she's sent to France at the beginning mm-hmm. of the movie, she's 14. Uh, okay. She's 14. When they um, rip that dog out of her hands. Mops. So it's the worst. Which which uh, did happen. Uh, is that true? Yeah. There are some interesting scenes in the movie that you'd be surprised are accurate. Oh, wow. And that's one of them, the whole handover where she enters as an Austrian woman and sort of is symbolically stripped of all her clothing. Yeah, yeah. And then leaves as a French person and has to leave all her French, uh, or excuse me, has to leave all her uh, home country things behind, including her her dog. What is the great line Judy Dench, or Judy Dench, Judy uh, Davis has? uh, You can have as many French dogs as you like. (laughs) The, the great Judy Davis. Yeah, she's she's wonderful in this role. Um, but uh, so she's fourteen then. Okay. Uh, when King Louis the Fifteenth dies and Louis the Sixteenth is crowned, her husband uh, Marie Antoinette's husband. Right. So that's Rip Torn. Rip Torn. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Who's also great in uh, this. <laughs> yeah. And everything. He's. I don't know if I read this somewhere, but I love this description of him. He's like a. A Texas oil baron king. Yeah. <laughs> he has that vibe to him. Did he, he, he died, right? Or did he? I don't know. That or is he one of those guys that I'm, I'm looking that up? Yeah. Might be worth checking out. Yeah. 
Rip Torn is alive. Yay. <laughs> Good for him. Good for him. <laughs> oh, that's a relief. Yeah. Um, but so when uh, when he his character dies in the movie. Right. Uh, and Louis XVI becomes king. He's <laughs> 20. Marie is 19. Okay. So just important to keep these ages in mind. Yeah, for sure. When you think about the movie. Um, and then when the movie ends, mm-hmm. which is roughly 1789, although it's not specified, Marie is roughly 34. Oh, wow. So the movie covers a pretty lengthy time span. Yeah. Although you wouldn't necessarily know it by there's no there's no title cards really except at the beginning of the movie. No, but you know what man, I think uh they didn't do any egregious like makeup and stuff like you said, but there's a of it kind of sneaks up on you. That third act w- w- which we'll get to, but that third act comes along and I found myself saying, "Wow, like this character there's a tonal shift that's happened and this character as it turns out has sneakily had this arc that you kind of didn't really notice." And she seems, she seems in her thirties, if she doesn't quite look it. The way she carries herself, and you know the scene. Well, I'll hold on to that. But the the scene at the opera at the end, yeah, when Whew. no one claps with her, it's yeah. like that kind of says it all. Like it's so subtle and nuanced. I think. And I think too, um, in terms of showing Marie's age, but also her emotional state, mm-hmm. it's really efficiently conveyed through the costumes. Yeah. And, and the, the costumes and the hairstyles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because as she go, once she gets to Versailles and she starts getting into buying every, you know, buying new clothes, mm-hmm. buying everything, the hairstyles get bigger. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the dresses get more colorful. Yeah. All that. And then after she has her children, when she retreats to her little country uh-huh. estate, the, I think it's called the Petit Trianon, it's much more uh, simple yeah, yeah. white dresses, uh-huh. nor- natural hair. As you do. As you do. And then uh, near the end, once uh, one of her children dies, mm. and as the world is sort of closing in on her, it's darker colors, the hairstyle is not as tall, mm-hmm. and it just all conveys that um, emotional state. Yeah. Marie Antoinette. Yeah, I think that's one thing I really love about uh, Sophia Coppola's films is such great care, and every director cares about the aesthetic. But she's just—it's just so clear to her how much it means, um, and and she's such a. Uh, this sounds obvious to say, I think, but she's such a feminine director. Like she's the color palettes, and she's always shooting like lacy things and sheer mm-hmm. fabrics and pretty things and pretty colors and just beauty. And you really just get a sense of that feminine touch in all her films, I think. Yeah. And and it's if you look at her career, the majority, especially the majority of her films, especially up to this point, they're all about isolated young women. Well, I saw so many parallels between this character and the characters in both of those other films. Like it's um, Sophia Coppola has a lot to say about being a young woman. Um, there's also a, a sort of stranger in a strange land feel to both this and Lost in Translation. She's dumped off in the middle of France and much like uh, ScarJo is just sort of like, what am I doing here? What I don't even understand my surroundings. Absolutely. And I think w- coming back to the film this time, uh, and having watched Lost in Translation recently, the parallels between those two characters were mm-hmm. were much more pronounced, like you said, and especially the way 
uh, Sofia Coppola depicts marriage in both of these films. Yeah. And I think this is where we see her maturity as a filmmaker. Uh-huh. Because one of my favorite aspects of the movie is the relationship between Marie Antoinette and yeah. Louis XVI, played amazingly by Jason Schwartzman. He's, <laughs> He's just this so awkward, good, this awkward boy. He doesn't speak for the first, like, eight scenes he's in, you know? The first yeah. half of the film, he doesn't say a word. He has no interest in in uh, women, really, yeah. and he just kind of likes to keep to himself in his hobbies. He has a passion for keys He and makes locks. keys. <laughs> it's adorable. He's so perfect for this, too. Yeah. Like, I know that he's uh, her, is it cousin or... Yeah, Sofia Coppola's cousin or second cousin or something like that. Yeah, but, it, I mean, nepotism aside, he kind of just nailed it. He did, yeah. That doughy, sad sack. <laughs> and, and yeah, and I think, like I said, where you see Coppola's maturity as a filmmaker is the way she depicts this relationship yeah. as it kind of evolves into this platonic relationship mm-hmm. based on mutual respect, even though there's not really any physical passion there. Yeah. And by the end of the movie, Marie refuses to leave Louis' side, yeah. even though it almost definitely means uh, her death eventually. Right. Uh, so it's it's an interesting take and an interesting evolution of, of marriage versus how it was depicted in Lost in Translation. Right, for sure. And they're both, uh, they're both brought to a circumstance because of a man mm-hmm. um, in each film as well. But I do love that relationship, and I, I was— she was so careful with him, and I thought it was so sweet how she, um, how much patience she had with him in the bedroom. Yeah, and never made him feel bad, and never made fun of him. Uh, she does have her affair, you know, which isn't like the coolest thing to do, but right. Um, she was always just very tender with him, and I think she he needed that. You know, there was so much pressure. Yeah, on both of them. You know, like the, the love making bed surrounded by people. It's like so over the top. I know, yeah. And and when Marie's mom at the beginning of the film says, all eyes of France will be on you, mm-hmm. she's not exaggerating. Yeah. And, and especially at this time, Marie Antoinette's only real function was to produce a male heir. Yeah. And because it takes them seven years to do that, mm-hmm. to even consummate the marriage, the pressure Marie must be under. Yeah when everyone's kind of looking at her and wondering, and they're blaming her oh, yeah. more than they are Louis. Well, because they don't know what's going on in there. Exactly. And, and like you said, the, the fact that Marie can still remain tender to him and very sympathetic. Mm-hmm. She doesn't sell him out. She doesn't sell him out. And she tries so hard. Yeah. And it's kind of heartbreaking to watch. And I think it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a depiction of relationships and marriage that you don't see mm-hmm. very often. Yeah. It, and I think, like we said, that feminine touch that Sofia Coppola brings, it's this its this angle that most male filmmakers probably wouldn't even think to totally. consider. You yeah. Know? Yep. I totally agree. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. And also notice the, uh, here we are talking about another beautiful shot of a woman's backside. Two movies in a row now. They have that great shot when she's being stripped of all her Austrian things at the very beginning. That beautifully framed, almost in silhouette, the way the shadows are playing when they, you know, take her clothes off and stuff. But again, I was like, man, Sophie Coppola just does another, like, beautiful butt shot. There's no other way to say it. And in this one, she's (laughs) totally naked. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, I noticed that shot too. It's so evocative of what's happening to her. She's Mm -hmm. literally and figuratively being stripped of everything she is and being given this new life. Yeah, and for a while there, it... uh, it kind of turns into a comedy. Yeah. Like, or at the very least, a heavy, heavy satire. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a series of uh, the the waking up, you know, being attended to mm-hmm. by all the women when she's standing there naked. And, you know, each time a new higher-ranking uh, member of the court would come in, then they would have to dress her. And that's that's true. Oh, I'm sure. That, that happened. That, and that I, felt real. Yeah, that happened. Yeah, yeah I believe that. Yeah. And then the— uh, the scene with them in the uh, in the dining room, it was basically like three or four or five scenes in a row that I was just like, this is kind of a straight up comedy in some ways, but not, you know, slapsticky. It's a it's it's very sort of dry comedy, almost uh-huh. comedy of manners. Yeah. It reminded me of some of the funnier bits of Barry Lyndon, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is actually kind of a hilarious movie uh, in, yeah, in some parts. respects. Uh-huh. Where it, it's sort of it's a send up of sort of the. Uh, the rituals and the formal uh, requirements of right. court life, where yeah. Marie Antoinette is just like, why do I have to maintain all these rituals? Why do I have to wait for this person to come in to address me and all these things? Yeah, I couldn't decide if um, Sofia Coppola is sort of taking the piss out of period piece films or the requirements of court life or kind of both. I think both. I think... Uh, mainly the requirements of court life. Yeah. But also in terms of period piece films, just overall the way she injects Mm -hmm. color and life into the movie. You know, it's what I love about this is they shot in Versailles. They had total access to to Versailles. That's what happens when you make Lost in Translation and get it. Is that the deal? Like, how did they get that access? Do you know anything about that? 
I don't know much because they don't just like hand that out. I would imagine some of it has to do with Coppola uh, having experience as like a fashion designer with right. French um, designers. Yeah. Maybe that got, got helped get her access. And also, she's probably popular in France. Popular in France. And it, I'm not going to lie, it probably does help when your dad is Francis Ford Coppola. The name Coppola opens some doors. Yes. I guess yes. the doors of Versailles included. But uh, she. She also had made Lost in Translation, right? Which was a hit, Oscar nominated, oh, yeah, did yeah. well at the box office. So she was kind of in that stage where she had a hit film and could kind of do whatever she wanted to right. a certain extent. Uh-huh. Uh, and so what I was going to say about Versailles is, I love how she adds so much life to Versailles, mostly with the color, mm-hmm. where this feels like a place that's alive and where where people actually lived. Yeah, you know, I love the color palette in this movie. It's that. Um... It's colorful, but it's not these bright colors that you have nowadays. It kind of reminded me of when uh, – have you ever been to uh, – what was George Washington's house? Uh, shit. Uh, starts with an <laughs> M. No, not Monticello. That's, oh, Mon- uh, that's Jefferson? Jefferson. Never mind. Uh, Mount Vernon. Mount Vernon. Um, have you ever been there? I have not. So the the – Old colonial colors, uh, when you walk through the house, you're like, did they really paint their walls like this color blue and this color green? Like you think of that time period as just being like beige or white. And every single wall color in Mount Vernon is like a different color, like from the Roy G. Biv spectrum. But they're a little more muted. It's not these super bright things. And that's what it kind of reminded me of these colors. There are colors everywhere, but they're just sort of like those muted blues and reds and of course, gold stuff everywhere. And it's just, I don't know, man. It's just, her movies are just so gorgeous to look at. Yeah, and I think a lot of the colors, she kind of is working in that pastel yeah, there color you, vibe. Exactly. Where, like you said, they're, they're a little bit muted, which I love. And, uh-huh. you know, she does this in all of her films, um, especially that pale pink. Yeah. I think it's, you'd call it millennial pink now. Oh, really? But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's like her bread and butter, you know. Yeah, that one, uh, when you first see that color is when she's wearing that pink kind of feathery, uh, hat and dress. Yeah. And it just like explodes off the screen. Just so gorgeous, man. Absolutely. Um, Schwartzman is so great. I just, I wrote that in all caps <laughs> on my paper. He's so good. Um, I also love, I thought like there were so many little subtle shots, I think, that uh, almost go unnoticed. Like when they, um, the close up when they she signed the marriage certificate. And there's just something about that ink well and the the quill and the way she signed her name and the big splatter of ink at the end. And just that shot alone, I think, was just, I don't know, it just really kind of hit me for some reason. Yeah, and that shot of the signature is another example of actually the movie being mostly historically accurate to how that marriage certificate was signed. And you'll notice how Marie Antoinette's signature looks a little more sloppy than the others. And in fact, it kind of slants downward. And then, of course, as you mentioned, there's that ink blot there. They all kind of reinforce how young and sort of girlish she is. And it also kind of hints at the fact that Marie did not have much in the way of what we'd think of as formal education. She'd been educated in sort of uh, the ways a woman 
are supposed to carry herself in court, but she didn't get the type of education that a man certainly would have received at that time. Yeah, for sure. Um, so let's talk about the accents. <laughs> I thought it was – it did not, did not bother me at all. Like it depends on the movie. Sometimes when you see like a Valkyrie, that threw me off. Have you seen that film? The, the Tom Cruise movie? Yeah. I, I haven't seen it, no. Yeah, I mean, Tom Cruise plays a German, and he's talking like Tom Cruise. <laughs> but he opens the movie speaking in German, and then it just immediately morphs. And that was a choice Brian Singer made. I remember there was a lot of press at the time. Um, and it, it just it made it feel off. This doesn't feel that way to me for some reason. I agree. And I think what what Coppola does is she doesn't worry about any type of consistency with the accents. Mm-hmm. She just almost says, whatever your accent is normally, mm-hmm. use that. So yeah. Kirsten Dunst is talking like almost like a little bit of like a teenage valley girl. Yeah. A little bit. Rip Torn is obviously like he's, uh, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> he's Rip Torn. Ted Turner or something. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and um, and then some people do have actual French accents, you know. Right. And then I think I love uh, Madame Dubur- Dubarry, who is Louis XV's mistress. Oh, right. Played by Agia Argento. Who, oh, that's right. She has, she has like this almost like New York Brooklyn accent. Uh-huh, yeah. She totally does. pretty great. <laughs> what the fuck are you looking at? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why isn't she acknowledging me at court? Oh, I love that scene actually when she she gets mad because she's not acknowledging her. Her uh, Who is Coogan? What, what's his role? He's uh, the Austrian sort of advisor, ambassador okay. advisor to Marie Antoinette. To make sure everybody's getting along. Exactly. But yeah, he sits her down and is like, hey, listen, basically, like, you got to say something to her in front of people <laughs> to smooth this out. Please just do this. And there's that great scene, man, where everyone's standing around and everyone knows the deal. And uh, what does she say? There are a lot of people at Versailles today. Yes. And... <laughs> It's so that's, perfect. That happened. Oh, is that what that she said? That happened, and that's exactly what she said. Oh, my God. That's straight out of history. That's so great because it's like the most banal exchange you could ever imagine. But the way that Argento and everyone reacts is she's flattered. She's and so happy. Everyone is just like, oh, God, thank God. Like yeah. she acknowledged her. Let's just move on. The protocols <laughs> of court life, man. It's crazy, man. Anytime I see – and it, it did remind me of Barry Lyndon, but anytime I see movies about court life – it's just like I, I just can't believe people live that way. They a, a filmmaker almost has to have it be a little bit of a comedy because otherwise yeah. it's just like if you play it straight, yeah, it's too much. It's too much, yeah. Yeah, there's no way. Um, all the bedroom scenes are just so sad and funny and touching in some ways. Like it just felt so bad for Schwartzman every time he would turn over in bed mm-hmm. and just be like, oh, "Well, I'm just going to sleep." Basically, it was just so sad. Yeah, it's very – it humanizes both of them so much, Yeah, you know? And it's why I think by the end of the movie, we really do empathize with those two characters. And yeah, you they see do it, have a love. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very much a deep kind of uh, respect for each other. For sure. And, and uh, trust. Yeah, and I think um, – I think she res- she's tender with him, I think, because – He's not uh, – he, 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 A, he needs it, like I said earlier. But B, he's not like – he treats her well. He could have been rough with her or like, you know, macho. And he's just – he's like he's none of the things that uh, his father is, for one. Right. He's not a just sort of a brutish, you know. Playboy. Playboy. 
<laughs> Owls or bosom. <laughs> I think that's Rip Torn's first line. Yeah, yeah. Owls or bosom. It's the first thing I look at. Uh <laughs> And then the scene, too, that got me uh, comedically was the um, when they went to the doctor. Yes. And the doctor says, do you find your body responsive? And, like, Schwarzman doesn't say anything. He kind of doesn't know how to react. And he goes, what did you eat for breakfast? And the camera pulls away, and he goes, hot chocolate. Hot chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> and I think afterwards – in the movie, when you see them eating after that scene, they they seem to always be eating. I think maybe they change their diet to give them more like uh, foods that might be aphrodisiac. Oh, really? Like more sweets, more things <laughs> like I don't know, oysters, <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, but it also gets at something really interesting: is is the unconsummated marriage? Yeah, which that's what really happened, and it it isn't really fixed until Marie's brother. Mm-hmm. comes to visit and kind of give Louis a pep talk. Right. And he, you hear him kind of writing a letter back to their mother back in Austria about, right. I don't think there's anything wrong with him. He just, he's just clueless. They're yeah. both clueless on how to actually make this work, which I think is the truth. That's why it wasn't consummated. And so once yeah. he gets a push in the right direction, then it's like, oh, yeah. now we know what we're doing a little bit. Well, I mean, he was a virgin, right. uh, I guess. Like, I think that's clearly, a safe, right? safe assumption. <laughs> He's a virgin who is all of a sudden thrown in bed with a person, and people are practically watching. Like they do have their private time, yeah. like at the very end of the night. But uh, there's there's people around everywhere whispering and their eyeballs on them. Like you talk about, you know, performance anxiety. You know. Yeah, and oh. also they're they're teenagers. <laughs> they're not well, even. Yeah. yeah. How old was he at the beginning? Uh, I so think she, she was, was only 14? a year older than Marie Antoinette, so oh, okay. 15, <laughs> you know? That's crazy. Um, I love all the animals in this movie, too. Emily and I, of course, as big animal people, were mm-hmm. loving the dogs and the chickens and the sheep. And, and Marie loved all the animals, too, which was kind of cool. Yeah. I don't know nice. if that was uh, accurate or not, but I appreciated it. Uh, the The moments of the handheld, too, were so fleeting but so effective – um, the one that comes to mind is just that brutal scene after uh, uh, her friend has uh, the baby. Yeah. Uh, I believe that's Louis' brother. Okay. Maybe. Louis, right. Because uh, it was could the be first wrong. prince born yeah. on uh, the soil. That's right. Right. And she just – she gets out of there as quick as she can and locks herself in a her room and it goes to that handheld like right up in her face. And it's just fucking brutal to watch. It's Yeah, and it's kind of this handheld, unbroken take where yeah. Marie just kind of collapses. Literally, she, she starts crying. She uh-huh. falls to the ground. And uh, the scene, there's no music. It's yeah. very quiet except for her crying. And then it cuts to a much wider shot where she's sitting on the ground in the corner of this gigantic room, mm-hmm. just totally uh, in anguish. Yeah. And then what happens? That shot cuts to the I Want Candy Okay, yeah. Uh, music montage. Basically, the movie stops to become a music video. It, uh, an 80s music video yeah. on top of that. <laughs> but that, that's an interesting juxtaposition that she goes from feeling inadequate and horrible about herself because she can't – she wasn't the first to have her baby. Yeah. And then immediately into shopping, excess. Right. Food, all this, all this stuff. And I think that's a very clever edit that Coppola makes because mm-hmm. it shows that partially the reason why she – 
loves to spend money is because it's her only outlet yeah. for uh, having maybe asserting some agency in her life. And also she just – she feels so alone at court. Yeah. yeah I mean the other like – the only other thing she could have been was an alcoholic or something. <laughs> you know, she has yeah. this marriage that she sort of feels trapped in. I mean she doesn't like hate Schwartzman or anything. But she's she's trapped. She can't tell anyone why she's not having a baby. She can't say, like, this guy has no sexual interest, like, at all, much less in me. Um, and so, yeah, so she spends money and she eats and she parties. Uh, the party scenes are so great. Yeah, they definitely give the Lost in Translation party scenes a run for their money. I think so, yeah. for sure. And and they both also mirror the uh, each other in the, uh, the the sunrise after the party night. Yeah. Very much reminded me of Lost in Translation. And, and I think we've all had those... Uh, those are some of the best moments in life, man. When I look back in college, like when you are seeing the sun coming up and you're like, we did it, guys. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that in this movie, she can, Coppola can put those scenes in there mm-hmm. with sort of not really any sort of winking nods or anything. It's yeah. like, yeah, these people are living their lives. And mm-hmm. while, yeah, you can see this as a critique of the excess they live in, it's also just people. Yeah. Enjoying each other's company, having fun, and staying up till the sun comes up. Yeah, and she does that so well. The uh the nonverbal scenes um throughout all of her, her filmography, she's always done that really well. Just uh she can get so much, it's so evocative and get so much out of uh scenes with no dialogue. Just them with that sun coming up and them laughing and the way she shoots it, there's some ethereal quality that just like totally sucks me in. Yeah, it's – she's great at it. I think it's it's that cinematography. She kind of alternates between very composed shots and mm-hmm. then just the handheld documentary sort of style. Mm-hmm. And then so often it's the music. Yeah. Got to talk about the music. Yeah. I mean it opens with Gang of Four. Yeah. It's got I Want Candy. It's uh, – so – when we did Lost in Translation, somebody in the Facebook group commented, because I think one of us said that that was our favorite Coppola soundtrack, and they said, no, 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 Marie Antoinette yeah. is, is the best soundtrack. It's pretty good. And I think I, they definitely yeah. give each other a run for their money. Yeah, I, think, I mean, she has her uh, her music aesthetic for sure. Yeah. It's pretty consistent. Yeah. And I my favorite needle drop in the movie is uh, it's when Louis gets uh, during his coronation. Mm-hmm. They play "Plain Song" by The Cure oh, yeah. for like not even thirty seconds yeah. before there are any vocals, and then sounds it, like a score almost. Yeah, and then it immediately goes into uh, "Ceremony" by mm-hmm. New Order mm-hmm. during that party gambling scene. Yeah, I mean that's just a that's just a, that's that's a needle drop and a half right there. Yeah, and it works, man. It's not like I remember even the first time I saw it, I didn't think. Oh, she's just so clever and cheeky, like doing this modern music and a sort of a modern teenager take on a period piece. Like it never came across as that to me. It it works as well as uh, an orchestra. I think it's like why not? Yeah, it's and like it, it just I don't know. There's something about it where it never felt like she was being cute. No, it's and almost all of the music um, pieces inform Marie Antoinette's emotional state or mm-hmm. the the state of court in general. It's a very uh, sort of singular POV film from yeah. Marie Antoinette's point of view. Yeah, that's true. 
Yeah, there are a lot of uh, – I feel like there are a lot of shots like that too that kind of show her uh, from her point of view or just like where her face is the only thing on the camera. Yeah, there's a great a great shot where uh, – Or on the screen. Yeah, w- there's a great shot where um, it's when they haven't consummated their marriage and you hear a letter from Marie Antoinette's mother. Oh, I know what you're talking about. And – uh, she's against that wallpaper. She's against the wallpaper. Yeah. This this wallpaper with flowers and tree branches and Marie Antoinette's dress mm-hmm. is almost the exact same pattern to where she's blending in yeah. with the wallpaper. I mean, gorgeous that's shot. gorgeous shot. And then it sh- slowly pushes into her and it ends almost on a close-up. And she actually like looks right into the camera. Yeah. And it's it's just, it's, it's so great. Good. Yeah, <laughs> There are a few shots like that too. Uh, that one for sure I noted, but... Um, the shots where uh, that really reminded me of Barry Lyndon were the ones that Kubrick had ripped off from old paintings, and there were a few of these in here where she was clearly inspired by his inspiration, where it would look like you know just a painting of the day, where she's like thrown back on the chaise with someone doing her you know her dress or something, and it's just like composed like a beautiful painting. Yeah, and another shot that reminds me of is when Louis. Uh, crowned king when they're in sort of the chapel. Uh-huh. And it's this very almost wide tableau shot of him, the crowns being placed on his head mm-hmm. and the lights streaming in at the perfect angle. Oh, yeah. It looks almost like, the, I, I think there is an actual painting that's very similar to that. Oh, and yeah. In that case, they almost just copied it uh-huh. verbatim, you know? Yeah, why not? Why not? I mean, didn't you say that... Uh... Lost in Translation butt shot was uh, inspired by a photographer? Uh, yeah, inspired by either a painter or a photographer, I forget. Um, but yeah, so, uh, you know, it's all there. Well, I love that, you know, she's not afraid to bring in her other experiences. And uh, clearly fashion is one of them. And uh, again, with just her aesthetic is just so, so beautiful. And she brings all her inspirations and just with the music – it's like she loves that music, so she's going to use it, you know? Yeah. It's like get the string quartet out of here and give me uh, Robert Smith <laughs> <laughs> any day of the week. Yeah. On that note, I do think it's interesting to point out how this film probably more than – I would argue maybe more than any of Coppola's other films has a certain element of autobiograph – has a certain autobiographical quality to uh, it. Oh, right. In the way she sort of identifies with Marie Antoinette mm-hmm. as this – young girl of privilege mm-hmm. who's kind of thrust a little bit into the spotlight. Uh, and with, criticized. And criticized. Yeah. Just like uh, Sofia Coppola, she had acted in Godfather Part Three, and yeah. her part was widely panned by yeah, everybody. Man. She got killed. Got killed. And then she kind of quietly develops her own artistic mm-hmm. uh, style and temperament, which you do see in this movie where Marie Antoinette, she plays the piano. She puts mm-hmm. on her own play. Yeah. At, uh, I think it's at her sort of little um, country getaway and they invite everybody. And right. And you might expect a, a scene like that to play out where she's terrible and, mm-hmm. you know, everyone's just kind of putting up with it because she's the queen. But no, she's actually a good singer. Yeah. And everyone, especially her husband, enjoy the performance. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of performances, the uh, – the it looks like a Max Fisher production, which I love that <laughs> that first uh, opera. Yeah, and it's easily the best slow clap in movie history. I think. Yeah, because it's real. It's not um, like slow claps are such a trope, mm-hmm. and they're like, they're it's almost a trope on a trope to where they're ineffective and just dopey. But this was a like a slow clap that had real emotion to it. 
because she 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 loved the art that she was seeing and she was encouraging she was remember she was like in her sweet little Kirsten Dunst voice she's like come on clap clap yeah and then they started clapping and started clapping and then they're all i feel like the audience turned and they got it you know it was like a, it was a real slow clap it was it's great too because at first you get the sense that the audience they turn to her yeah. and so it's almost like they're clapping for her exactly and then but of course then she sort of she makes it clear that she wants the cla- she wants people to know that she's clapping for the performance yeah yeah and it's a very p- key scene i think because in that scene you see a shot of schwartzman kind of looking at her mm-hmm. and being very impressed with her yeah yeah and i think it's a turning point in the movie because it's when she sort of realizes she does have at least a little bit of power, mm-hmm. a little bit of agency where she can sort of I- inform the trends and the styles of the day. Yeah, and she and, has her own, own opinions. Yeah, and she's not afraid to flout convention, mm-hmm. which, you know, you see all throughout the movie. Why Why is everyone here so stodgy? It makes right. no sense. Yeah, like you know? I can't reach for my own hand towel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that's when she sort of a, a little bit asserts her agency, I think. Yeah, I mean uh, – you're totally right. A switch happens there in her character and how Schwartzman sees her. Mm-hmm. I keep calling him Schwartzman. Well, we're gonna. I think we're gonna do that for the rest of the episode. And of course, that scene is mirrored at the later opera scene, which we mentioned before. Yeah. When it's another turning point when she finally realizes, oh my gosh, people don't like me. Now, is that the is that the read there? Like they don't follow her slow clap, and it, she has lost them. I think so. Lost their confidence or whatever. Yeah, because. Uh, at this point, I think it's probably common knowledge about her spending. Right. And she's being uh, – this is more getting the the historical side of it, but mm-hmm. she's being sort of slandered and libeled in, in the press and right. stuff and seen as sort of this embodiment of the out-of-touch aristocracy, right. which of course is kind of ironic because all of the people in that opera theater are probably also very well-to-do people. Oh, sure. And so the people who – presumably have the most grievance against her wouldn't even be at that show. Yeah, you know? that's a good point. But at this point, she's become a symbol for everything that's wrong with the monarchy. Yeah, and it was very effective um, to play those two scenes out at those two different points in her life. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, when she starts having kids, she does change. Yeah. And, they, and they're, oh, man, what a – there are many ways to handle, like, a, the death of a child in I a movie. I knew you were going to go there, yeah. But to swap those paintings out – tough yeah. like again visual storytelling yeah 101 right there like how much more powerful could it have gotten uh you didn't need a scene of her being told or breaking down and crying like just that simple shot exchanging the painting with one less child in it was just like it's devastating brutal. yeah just brutal yeah Ugh, i can't handle that shit <laughs> <laughs> Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. If you use paper, you're a human. 
But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Uh, all the scenes with her daughter, though, early on, you know, her first daughter, just so sweet. Yeah. That, there... that little girl, it was just adorable. Where Who actually does speak French? <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, if we can, I'd like to touch on those scenes a little bit. Yeah, man. Um, that's where, again, she's at her kind of country retreat. Uh, and it's very this pastoral vibe where you got the animals roaming freely. Yeah, it's so And it great. sort of turns into a Terrence Malick film a little yeah. bit. <laughs> Shots of people frolicking through the grass yeah. and everything. And this is so this this sequence is so interesting. And I think if you pay attention, it's where Coppola's sort of critique actually comes into focus a little bit. Mm-hmm. There's a great shot where you see the servants picking the eggs out of the chicken coop Mm -hmm. and sort of wiping them off with all the sort of grime and dirt that's on them. Mm -hmm. And then it very quickly cuts to Marie and her daughter coming out later Mm -hmm. to pick the the eggs out of the coop. And, oh, they're perfectly clean. So the servants are still there doing the dirty work. Yeah, yeah. They're always uh, sort of present in the background, even though sort of Marie keeps saying about how she feels so at home with nature and mm-hmm. she's getting away from all that court life. Well, she's not getting so far away from it. Right. You know? It's a bit of an illusion. It reminded me, have you ever read Anna Karenina? No, Emily has. So without going too far on a tangent here, uh, in that in that book by Dostoevsky, the sort of main character, the stand-in for the author is a guy named Levin. Mm-hmm. And he's sort of this well-to-do aristocrat. And at one point, he gets fed up with sort of life in the city mm-hmm. and retreats to his sort of his family's country estate home and sort of decides he's going to commit himself to working the land mm-hmm. and, you know, get back to nature. And so there are scenes where he goes out with all the peasant workers and he wants to harvest the fields just like them. And he does. Mm-hmm. But then you actually see how the, all the peasants have to sort of deliberately slow down how fast they're working (laughs) to allow him to stay with them. Yeah. And it's sort of this awkward thing where he feels like he's getting something out of it, but ultimately he's slowing the work down and they're all kind of having to accommodate his sort of naive whim of communing with nature. I think everyone's been in a situation like that with like a boss before Yeah, where you just want to say like, it'd be a lot easier if you just left. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So we don't have to like undo what you're doing because you feel like you should do something. Yeah. It's it's okay. Just go. But yeah, it's it's a similar thing in Marie Antoinette where she's, 
she sees herself as kind of becoming this like country mother. Yeah. But you know, if if you pay attention, all of the all of the signs that she's still very much an aristocrat are there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like she, it's it's uh, it's it's inescapable for her at that point. You know. Yeah. Like even if she wants to, she can't get away from it. Exactly. Her. Yeah. Um, one of the other funny parts, I just got to keep calling out some of these Schwartzman bits. Um, cause I know that this was just an improv in the moment when, and it's a funny scene anyway, when they're, um, when he actually is King and they're saying, you know, like, I think we should send funds to America and that whole exchange. And he, he sort of deliberates. He clearly doesn't really understand. And he's obviously going to do what they recommend. And he goes, send funds to America. And so they're sort of making it so on paper and he looks down and he grabs a poster tube off the table and just puts it up to his eye like a telescope and looks at the guy like two feet across from him. <laughs> Dude, it's such I, a funny little moment. I had that exact scene <laughs> written down in my notes as well because it's so funny. But it reminds you that he's like a kid who's bored in class. Absolutely, he's, man. He's, he's a teenager. It was so perfect he, for him to do that. And it, and you could tell that so he just did that. It wasn't – I guarantee you that's not in the script or anything. Yeah. He yeah. just – he was just in character – and was like, oh, look at that fun thing. And it just shows you how sort of out of his depth he is. Yeah. And how him and Marie Antoinette are never really given instruction on how to rule. All they're no. given is instruction on how to sort of, you know, bow at court and carry themselves without actual uh, training on how to be an efficient ruler. Yeah, like the things that don't really matter as yeah. far as governing, um, they're full of that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but, yeah, there is no uh, – there's no political instruction whatsoever, which is good, I think, for the film. Yeah. Like, it doesn't get bogged down. Um, it's a light movie for a while, but that that third act, man, there's a distinct tonal shift that happens where she just feels older and it's not jokey anymore. Uh, and, I, and I guess that's with the uh, – just very purposeful with the history of the approach of the French Revolution and what was going on in the country – you know, it's not fireworks and party time anymore, you know? Yeah, and it's it's interesting, too, how we never see the peasants, really. We never see the actual people of France who are suffering. Yeah. There are never shots of cutaways to, to Paris of I people know. not having enough food. And I think that's I very— I thought that was interesting. It's very deliberate because it shows you probably what Louis and Marie, what their state was. They sure. had no— connection to that they mm -hmm. never really saw what was going on and because this is a very uh, point of view movie it makes sense that we yeah. never see that because they would have never seen it i totally agree like it was really smart to keep the audience in the same bubble as as them uh super super effective and another scene that kind of shows you how out of their depth they are is when um uh, Steve Coogan is sort of counseling her and, and saying, hey, the people are starving. You know, it's a very tough time in France and we need to have some at least perceived austerity. Right. And then Marie sort of says, well, we won't buy as many diamonds. Right. We don't need so many diamonds, do we, honey? <laughs> yeah. And it's just like. I'll take the smaller trees. <laughs> yeah. Like you you clearly cannot comprehend the magnitude of the problem. Yeah. Because nobody's really instructed you on, on, on how bad it is or what you should be doing. Yeah, I'm sure they were uh... – Purposefully kept in the dark yeah. in a lot of ways. Um, I think, all right, I got to my favorite needle drop. Yeah. Right after she finally, like, really gets laid. <laughs> Are we talking about Count Furson? <laughs> Count Furson. Oh, yeah. Um, He's and, a snack. Yeah, and he is a snack. And they have that, that, you know, really passionate sex scene where it's like, you know, she gets real sex 
you know? Mm-hmm. Um, Adam and the Ants. Boom. Right after that. It's like so perfect. Such a great needle drop. It's uh, and, and this this is something I read too that uh, Count Furson's look was based on Adamant in the eighties. Oh, really? Like this kind of like sort of swashbuckling rake, rake. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, He's which still is, around too, man. I want to go see him play. Really? He's, yeah, he went through a lot of. Uh, I mean, I'm a big Adam and the Ants fan, but he um, he had a lot of troubles with uh, his mental health and stuff like that, and he's, like, come out the other side, and he's performing again. Nice. And, like, the set lists are incredible. Yeah. So next time he comes, like, maybe we'll all go or something. <laughs> Dress up as Count Person. I love that you love this music, man. Were you, you, like, you were a kid when this stuff was going on, or not even. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, and some of, some of the songs in it, I some of the artists I'm not that familiar with. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, uh, The Cure, stuff like that, I've yeah. just kind of listened to as I've gotten older, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, that happens. Yeah, I listen to music from the '60s. <laughs> we all do. Uh, this is so up Emily's alley, though. Like all of, uh, she's just. I mean, that was her in high school. She was at the New Order shows and the Cure and the Smiths and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, oh, by the way, Count Furson, played by Jamie Dornan. Who is that? So he, he well, I don't know if um, you've seen any of these movies, but he uh, is in the Fifty Shades of Grey series. Oh, is he the main guy? He's the main guy. Okay. He's uh, Christian Grey. Right. And uh, I've seen all three of the movies. Really? Yeah. Uh, they're not good. Why have you seen these? So it, me and my girlfriend, they, they come out, they've come out like every Valentine's Day. Uh, and so like as a kind of fun, kind of campy thing, yeah, we go yeah. to them. That's just because we know date. Yeah. That's we, fun. We know they're not going to be good, but right. they're still kind of <laughs> fun to go to. Um, but he's... Christian Grey in those movies who also kind of is meant to be this uh, snack, a, snack <laughs> to say the least. But I got to say, the chemistry between him and Kirsten Dunst in this movie is a million times better than oh, it sure. is in any of the Fifty Shades movies. Yeah. He's, <laughs> those looks he gives, man. Yeah, I mean, when they first meet at that, uh, at the party social or whatever, you know, it's one of those across the room moments where they're drinking each other in and you're just like, uh-oh, like it, we see what's coming here. Yeah, and and there's a great shot where um, after he leaves, where Marie Antoinette kind of goes back to, back to the court, back to her normal life, right? And she kind of goes to the window and looks out mm-hmm. longingly, and then it cuts to presumably what she's imagining, and it's Count Furson on horseback, yeah. <laughs> and there's explosions behind him, and his face is covered in dust, yeah. and he's just like in this heroic pose like like from a from a painting or something right. and she's just like she's so thirsty man yeah. for him <laughs> yeah i mean and i don't blame her i mean yeah she's she's uh she's forced to share a bed with a man who's who's not in- interested like yeah there's a uh, you know there's a lot of sympathy there i think Definitely. if you can get past like i guess she was derided in history and I know Coppola got some shit for sort of showing empathy toward her, yeah. uh, especially in France. Yeah. Isn't that right? Yeah. I mean, famously, the movie was booed when it premiered at Cannes. Yeah. Uh, but I and K- Casey and I both have kind of this opinion. Anytime a movie gets booed at Cannes, it immediately makes it me want to see it because <laughs> yeah. it, it must mean the movie's doing something interesting to elicit that yeah. reaction. Agreed. Uh, and I saw Ebert, too, wrote about that and said that he was there yeah. and said it was a little bit overblown, yeah. like a few people, journalists booed, and that's kind of what they do in Europe anyway. Yeah. But it is true that this is her um, most critically 
divisive film. Yeah. It's got a 55% know, on Rotten Tomatoes. I told Emily that last night, and she was like, oh, well, those people didn't get it. Yeah. And I was like, do you think that's it, or did they get it and just not appreciate it? And she was like, they didn't get it. <laughs> She's I mean, like, it's great. They didn't get it. It's sort of that that a lot of it is that criticism that gets leveled at Coppola a lot, which is that she's all style and no yeah. substance. But I, I disagree. I disagree. And it's, it's a similar thing we talked about in Lost in Translation where uh, the aesthetic style informs so much of the uh-huh. movie and Coppola isn't afraid to sort of take pleasure mm-hmm. in luxury and nice things. For example, yeah. that I Want Candy sequence um, – it shows why those things are so appealing. I mean, who wouldn't want to mm-hmm. have this shopping spree and be able to buy whatever they want and eat all these delicious, colorful pastries? I mean, you get why that's attractive. Yeah, yeah, and I, I've never, I've never liked the criticism about a filmmaker that they. Uh, all right, I'm going to bring up Woody Allen. So just park everything else about him to the side. Sure. <laughs> Can we all do that for a second? But a lot of criticism he used to get was like all he ever does is write movies about the upper crust and these Upper East Side people um, who, you know, go to the Hamptons for the weekend and do this and do that. And I'm like – I was always like, well, yeah, that's like – that's the world he knows and understands and writes about. Mm -hmm. Sophia Coppola grew up very privileged and wealthy and the son of a very famous person. And like this is the world she feels comfortable writing about and expressing. Yeah. Like like she's not going to make a movie about – you know, some poor kid from a bad neighborhood, she sh- probably shouldn't make that movie. Right, yeah. She would, I mean, yeah, she would probably feel dishonest to try to be yeah. able to tell something true of a story like that. I know. I just, I, I've never liked that kind of criticism about filmmakers. Like, there's nothing wrong with uh, doing a film about what you know, whether you're Wes Anderson or, uh, I'm not going to say the other guy's name again, but. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Or, or maybe back in the day, uh, Whit Stillman. I don't know if you yeah. ever saw any of his oh, movies. Oh, a big fan of Whit Stillman. Yeah, but everyone, you know, would pile on, or not everyone, a lot of people loved him, but people would pile on Whit Stillman because of all these movies about the upper crust New Yorkers and the, and I was like, well, that's that's what he knows, I guess. And, and I think people get mad if if you make a movie like that that doesn't just eviscerate them. Right. If you show that's any. That's the deal. If you show any sort of identification or empathy totally it's man. like they immediately attack you yep you know? that's you're right i never really thought about that that's the key you can make a movie about that if you're saying like what shitty people they are yeah or how vapid and empty and sophia coppola doesn't do that mm-hmm. she sort of romanticizes it I, I, but not to say that the critique isn't there yeah especially in this movie it's there it's just it's not all the movie's about. She tries to humanize this person and say, what would it be like right. to be this woman in this of privilege in this impossible situation? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And and these days, it may be tougher to pull off a message like that. Mm-hmm. Um, like, hey, why don't we see if we can empathize with this queen who was handed everything and never had to work and yeah. said, well, apparently didn't say let them eat cake. Isn't that a... It's yeah. It's pretty much acknowledged that that's not, not something true. not true. Yeah. yeah, but the sentiment was there, whether or not she said those words. Yeah, or at least the perceived sentiment was there. Right on the part of the people. Okay, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> look at you, apologist. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, the, that third act comes along. The tonal shift happens, and um, you end up with this. Very nuanced character arc, I think, and it's there's not the scene where sort of like the obvious scene where it's like, 
well, here are the lessons I learned on my way to becoming who I am. It's just played out very realistically and kind of quietly, like she does in all her work, I think. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I mean, shouldn't that, beat you over the head with anything. That um, it's not the final scene, but one of the final sequences, the 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 people are at the door of Versailles, literally. Mm-hmm. And what do they do? What do Marie and Schwartzman do? They put on their Sunday best, yeah, and they sit at the table, and their servants are serving them, and they're yeah. having a meal, and they're sort of defiantly saying, "I'm not going to kowtow to you," yeah. and then they kind of put their hands out and they clasp each other's hands. Yeah. And it's such a moving moment because it is. it's sort of the culmination of that relationship, uh-huh. that marriage, where it from where it started yeah. to where it is now. Mm-hmm. And it is this sort of deep sense of love and sort of a tacit acknowledgement of this isn't going to end well for us, but we're going to stick by each other's side. Yeah, just with that simple hand-holding gesture. Uh, super powerful. Um, and then the, the, the end, man, you know, you have... Uh, another sunrise shot, and yeah. I think very purposely sort of echoing that first one when it was party time and they had been up all night having a good time. Yeah. This time they're fleeing Versailles as the sun's coming up. Um, and that, I mean, one of the great last lines, I think, of a movie ever. And I'm a sucker for a, a gut punch of a last line. But when they're riding off in the carriage and he says – and it also kind of shows a little bit how clueless he still is in a way. Yeah. Like he still doesn't quite get it, even at the very end. Yeah. Because he says, are you admiring your Lime Avenue? And she says, I'm saying goodbye. Yeah. And she's she gets it. Like she's more, uh, or at least as portrayed in the film, she's more further along than he is, I think, as to the reality of, of what's going to happen next. Yeah. And kind of famously, she doesn't show... An execution. Yeah. Because we know it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't need to. And no, I think she has that last shot. That yeah. Still shot, basically, of uh, of just the, the, the wrecked bedroom. The wrecked bedroom. And every time I see that shot, it grows in my estimation of what it's doing. Yeah. Because on one hand, it's just showing you this is what happens to the bedroom. This is what happens when the, the people revolt mm-hmm. against excess. Yep. But it's also such a heartbreaking shot because that's the room where we've seen so many sort of human moments mm-hmm. take place. That's where they've had their late night conversations in bed. Yeah. That's where the babies were born. Yeah. Uh, you know. That's where all, she first arrived and became, you know, the queen. And that's just natural human things that happen there, even though people don't want to acknowledge that rich people have Troubles too. Troubles too. Yeah, rich people got problems too, you know? Because yeah. at this point, Marie has become a symbol of everything that's wrong with with France, but she's still human and she still experienced these human things of yeah. love and uh, mundane... Heartbreak. Heartbreak, yeah, mm-hmm. all these things. And it's it's reflected in that last shot. Yeah, and it's just so perfect. Like there, I think a lot of other filmmakers would have... Um, Maybe shown a montage of wreckage, of a destroyed Versailles, of people pounding at the door. But again, Coppola is just so nuanced, I think. And restrained. And yeah, totally restrained. And just that one, it looks like a photograph. Basically, it is a photograph. Yeah. You know? And it's just so powerful. Such a great way to end the movie. Yeah. It's, uh, and I think... 
this kind of gets to what I think is, if I may, Coppola's ultimate argument with the film. Mm -hmm. And I think it's this, that she's sort of posing this question of why was Marie Antoinette made sort of the scapegoat Mm -hmm. for all the excesses of the monarchy? Right. Because it was everybody. It was everybody, and it was a system that had existed long before she got there. Yeah. It wasn't like she was the first person to Uh -uh. do this. And in fact, her her outrageous spending habits were not actually that outrageous when compared to other rulers and other just people of court. Yeah. Uh, And I think the sort of answers that Coppola poses to that question of why she's a scapegoat are a lot of things. Mm Mm-hmm. One, we didn't really talk about she's a foreigner. Right. And I they think it had a they, lot to do with it. A lot of, they almost see her as an Austrian spy mm-hmm. or something. They don't trust her. I think her. they even say, uh, Molly Shannon has yeah. that line where she calls her an Austrian spy. And also, it, let's remember that Austria and France had been at war. Mm-hmm. They weren't historical allies. And they had sort of consolidated, and this marriage was meant to sort of cement that alliance. But most of the regular people, don't feel that. They still see Austria as a natural enemy. Well, yeah, and he, uh, Coogan, I think, or is it the scene with her brother where uh, she says, I'm supposed to be the queen, but also I'm an Austrian? And they're like, you have to be both. Coogan, yeah, says you must be both. And it's sort of this impossible fine line type of walk she has to to make. But um, So she's a foreigner. Mm -hmm. She's a woman. Yeah. She's uh, not given any real power. Right. Even though she has this life of luxury she doesn't really get to make any decisions. Right. Um, she flouts convention. She doesn't like French rituals. And so yeah. that's possibly seen as uh, as another strike against her, I uh-huh. suppose. And so all of these things and, and the misogyny that's there, you know, contribute to why she was perceived this way, even though if you look at it, Coppola is arguing that's a very unfair characterization of yeah. Marie Antoinette. I think so for sure. Yeah. Man, what a good movie. Great movie. Uh, you got anything else? Oh. Uh, budget of the movie was 40 million. Oof. And it made about 60 million. Yeah. Worldwide. So skin of its teeth. Skin of its teeth. <laughs> Definitely the I think almost for sure the biggest budget Coppola had. Yeah, she won I know this one uh best costume Academy Award. Yeah. Um we should also shout out uh the great uh, Lance. Lance Accord. Lance Accord, her her trusty DP. And I also want to shout out her editor, who I think has edited all almost all of her movies. Her name is Sarah Flack. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so much of these of Coppola's movies, uh, their their power comes from the editing. So yeah. you got to give a shout out to her. I think. Yeah, the pace. Um, yeah, for sure. Same person, huh? Yeah. 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 On all all or almost all of her movies. Well, all right, dude. That was great. I always love these. Me too. What's next? So I don't know if we announced that uh, we're we're doing Virgin Suicides with Emily. With Emily. The three of us. Yeah. Because she's like, Paul is really pissing me off here because he's <laughs> taking all my Sophia Coppola movies. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So you very uh, kindly agreed that the three of us would do that one next. So if we can get her in here, that would be a good next one. But if not, what do you want to do? I'd love to do somewhere. Okay. Done. Cool. Yeah, man. A- another right. uh, stranger in a strange land type of story. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she yeah. has a – I guess with the beguiled, she really sort of w- was her change up. Yeah. Thematically. 
Mm-hmm. Or was it? <laughs> to be continued. Did you like that movie? Yeah. I, uh, it's probably lower on my yeah. ranking of her movies, but I liked it. I can't wait to do Bling Ring because... Uh, Man, that's one I need to revisit. I did not like that one when I saw it first. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I'm very interested to revisit it, though. So we're going to barrel through because Casey's bailed on Kubrick now. <laughs> He's like, I need a break. Let's do a movie that feels like a Kubrick movie and is inspired by a Kubrick movie. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to do Birth. Oh, Jonathan Glazer? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen that. But I haven't either. Yeah. Um, I'd say we'd go through Coppola, though, all the way, because the good, the bad, and the ugly, because yeah. I didn't think Beguiled was that great either, so, you know. So we'll have, yeah, some... Some, uh, not some just criticism. Us, some criticism, not just us <laughs> saying, man, this movie's awesome. <laughs> all right, dude, it was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. Thank you. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect.